Welcome to Bio, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. Bio is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm Bio member Jenny Skoog in New York City. On each episode, we talk with biographers about their work. This time, biographer Helen Rappaport talks about her book, In Search of Mary Seacole, The Making of a Black Cultural Icon and Humanitarian, published by Pegasus Books in September 2022. We recorded our interview on December 13, 2022 via Zoom. Tell me who Mary Seacole is. Mary Seacole, fundamentally now in Britain, is an absolute iconic figure in Black British history, because she has become very much a role model and a, a source of inspiration for particularly women in the women and men in the nursing profession, and especially Black nurses. Uh, and that dates back to the 1970s, when Caribbean nurses of the Windrush generation first discovered that Mary had lived in London and had died here. She has become a huge figure and at times controversial figure in British black history. And it started really when she was voted. There was an online poll in 2004 for the greatest black Britain. And Mary won, won that poll. And then the year later, 2005, was her bicentenary of her birth. And from that time onwards, um, she has really accumulated a lot of attention in Britain. And the profile, again, was particularly raised when an enormous statue of her was erected outside St. Thomas's Hospital in 2016. She's in the curriculum for school kids. In fact, most children in our country now, if you ask a 10-year-old who Mary Seacole was, they probably know know more about her than their own parents do because they're very well clued up on Mary. Why do you think she disappeared from the history books? When Mary Mary's um, story began to fade really after her death because there wasn't anyone to keep her legacy going. And unlike Florence Nightingale, of course, who founded Women's Nursing, She didn't have an archive. There was no paper trail. She didn't have all these pubs and streets and institutions and places named after her. And really, a lot of Mary's story was an oral one. It was kept alive in the memory of the soldiers who'd known her in the Crimean War, who passed on tales of her exploits. And as they died off, so Mary's story got a bit lost And then it it was really about 100 years from about 1880, well, less than 100 years, actually. After her death, her name started reappearing in 1954 with the 100th anniversary of the Crimean War. So at the outset, you lay out so many falsities in her story. And this book really read like a journey alongside the researcher. Why did you you decide to lay out the book in this way? In other words, why did you take the reader on this research journey with you as opposed to telling a narrative of Mary's story? Well, you can't just do a straightforward narrative of Mary because there are so many questions, so many gaps, inconsistencies, controversial points, contradictory points, that I felt the only way I could approach her story, and also because 
you know, the actual research materials very patchy. The only way I could really approach the story was to take the reader with me through what I had described at the beginning as kind of opening up a cold case and saying, what's the evidence? What do we know about Mary? Is this true? Is it her hyping things up? Is this a myth? And, you know, you have to unpick a lot of things in that story. And I had become frustrated because the trouble with the internet, although it's wonderful when you're looking for information in a hurry, is that once someone says something that's wrong, everybody else repeats it. And no, people tend not to go back to the original sources and check the facts. And in Mary's case, there was a, there was a lot of misinformation out there or inaccuracy. And I got very frustrated about it. And I'd been really following her story, tracking her for 20 years. And I thought the only way I can tell her story is to take the reader through with me. One of the major reasons I decided to do it that way is because whenever I do talks at literary festivals or meet readers, they often say to me, I just love to know how you do it. How do you find things? Where do you look for the material? How did you find that out? And so I think readers enjoy the, the detective kind of process, the research side of it. And so I thought I'd write it in that way, also because you can't do a straight cradle to grave biography of Mary because of the gaps. But as a student of biography, I really enjoyed going on that journey with you. And in fact, I also appreciated in your acknowledgments that you're asking for more information. You, you acknowledge these gaps in her story. Mm. What were some of the more surprising things that you unearthed in your research? Because Mary was elusive in her origin story. No one bothers to look at Mr. Seacole and where he sprang from and who his family was. And I, because I've done a lot of genealogical research in the past, including my own family history, I wanted to find out about his family because, you know, it gives more context to Mary and her story and in a way makes it all the more extraordinary. So, you know, it was fascinating tra tracking the Seacole family who turned out to be a really interesting naval family with connections to Nelson's Navy in the Napoleonic Wars and, you know, to apothecaries and, and surgeons and it, it was a really fascinating pro process finding that out. And, and, and this is just one aspect of how Mary, unfortunately, doesn't tell us about the people in her life. That's why I stubbornly chased down Mr. Seagull. But it's the same with her parents. That was the most torturous one of all, because Mary obfuscates right from the opening sentence. <laughs> She's very economical of the truth when she has to disguise things like her own illegitimacy. She was a product of a common law ma uh, relationship and a mixed ethnicity relationship. So in mid-Victorian Britain, when she was publishing her memoir, she had to hide all this. And one of the lovely surprises when I really got going on the genealogy on the Jamaican side, though I must say I couldn't have done it without my Jamaican researcher because I couldn't get to Jamaica because of COVID. And even if I'd been able to, quite honestly, it needed someone who really knew their way around. But again, it's very frustrating. Jamaican genealogical records are patchy. They don't go as far back. There are an awful lot of gaps. 
many, many couples, especially if they were black, white, mixed couples, often children weren't baptized, there aren't there isn't much documentation. So I was faced at the very beginning with not knowing a parent's names. I mean, what person writing their autobiography starts it by not telling you, you know, my mother was whatever and my father was so-and-so. All we know at the opening of the book is her father was a Scottish soldier. She doesn't even give his surname. We have to infer later much, much later, when she got married in 1836 to Mr. Seacole, her maiden name on the wedding certificate was Mary Grant. Ergo, her father was a Scottish soldier called Grant. So that's all I had to go on. Grant is one of the most common names in Jamaica. I had no idea what her mother's name was. I don't want to give out too many spoilers by getting into the detail, but suffice it to say, when I did find Mary's parents much, much later on, almost at the 11th hour, I then was able to unravel other things in her life, such as the fact that there were several half-siblings, all illegitimate. You know, Mary was the product of an almost classic Jamaican extended family. When you talk about her husband, Edwin Seacole, you write that this was clearly no romance, no love match, but a pragmatic business arrangement, which I found very interesting. He was white. She's black. And the marriage didn't last very long. He was very sickly. And she mm. spent much of it taking care of him and then never married again. that's why he married her. To be honest, that's probably what, just looking on what the, the cultural attitudes in Jamaica at the time, a lot of the white men took in or had relationships with women of colour or even black women, and they became their housekeepers. They were nominated their housekeepers, their carers if they got sick. They had children by them. Very often they provided well for any children of the relationships, but as such... These Jamaican women like Mary were great cooks. It, many of the, the boarding housekeepers like her, lodging housekeepers, were also doctresses, good at nursing the sick. If you're a colonial white man falling ill with fever every five minutes in the Jamaican climate, what better thing to do than find yourself a very nice and accommodating and talented woman like Mary Seacole to look after you? And so she gets her start here in Jamaica in a lodging house, her husband dies, there's a cholera outbreak, and she finds herself in Panama. Tell me about that journey. Well, you will know this better than me because you're an American and you know your American history. 1848, gold rush in California. All the all the Yankees, she called them the Yankees, all the Yankee gold prospectors were trying to get as quickly as they could to California. Now, at that time, a slow wagon train across America would have been hazardous and take ages. So the quickest way to get to California, if you're especially on the eastern side of the states, was to get yourself across the Caribbean to Panama, go down the Isthmus, which was only a few miles, down to Panama City and get a boat round and up to California. So there are a huge number of Americans cutting across and other nationalities all going to the gold rush. And Panama was a growth area because uh, they decided to build a railway to make it even quicker 
to get from the north to the south of the isthmus. So huge numbers of Jamaicans actually, and generally men from the Caribbean were going there to help build a railway. And oh, dying like flies of cholera and fever. And it was the most horribly inhospitable, boiling hot, jungly place, full of all kinds of nasties, you know, crocodiles and bugs and creepy crawlies and insects, you name it. It was hardly the most salubrious environment for any woman to go to. This is what I find so astonishing about Mary, you know, nothing faced her, nothing frightened her. And she'd sailed the Atlantic in her lifetime, I think, about nine times. At first, in the 20s when she went, that was in the old sailing ships before they were even had the screw steamers. So she went across to Panama. She she wanted to set up in business running a sort of hotel come restaurant. Hotel I use very loosely. Hotels in Panama weren't much more than either a shack or a tent. All these American prospectors going through needed food, needed accommodation. Quite a lot of women crossing as well. So Mary wanted to set herself up in business because her brother had gone there ahead of her. Soon word got out that she was the yellow woman, that's how the Americans described her, who could cure the cholera. And so they were flocking to her, you know, to have knife wounds stitched up, bullets extracted, you know, because it was the Wild West. Panama in the early 1850s was very lawless, very dangerous, you know. And she went into the thick of it. She's astonishing. The Crimean War breaks out. Well, she heard when she was in Panama and she sailed from Panama directly to England to volunteer. This was very late in 1854. In She arrived in late October. Now, by then, almost all the big battles had happened anyway. And she had to hang around trying to get permission to go and organise supplies and this, that and the other. And of course, she traipsed around all the official government offices. Uh, she volunteered for Nightingale's nurses. They were recruiting. Nightingale had already gone. Um, and every all the official channels turned her down. So she thought, right, I'll get my act together, go with the supplies and set up shop in Crimea, which is precisely what she did with the help of her business partner, Thomas Day, with whom she'd in, been involved in a bit of mining speculation in Panama as well, because there were gold and silver mines, of course, on the isthmus. Anyway, so she got herself out to Crimea and set up shop there, a sort of general store, pharmacy, uh, you name it. Um, she didn't run a hospital, though. This is one of the big myths. She comes in contact with Nightingale. Tell me about that relationship or lack thereof. Well, precisely. People overinflated. They didn't have a relationship. I mean, or it was entirely at a distance. Mary was in Crimea on the peninsula. Florence was 300 miles away across the Black Sea at the huge British hospital at Scutari. And the wounded were ferried across the Black Sea to her there. But when Mary was on her way out to Crimea, she arrived at Constantinople on, on a she managed to get passage on a supply ship. She had to then then wait for a commissariat ship from sent over from Balaclava. They were going back and forth all the time, see if she could get a place on one of them to get to Balaclava. 
So she thought, well, I must go and pay my respects to Florence Nightingale, who she sincerely respected and admired. So she traipsed up to the huge Scutari Hospital. Nightingale, terribly beleaguered and very busy, was a bit short with her, um, but polite enough. And, you know, Mary said hello, and uh, that was it, really. People have, again, perpetuated this myth that Mary went there to volunteer to work with Nightingale at Scutari. She didn't. She didn't want to be at Scutari. She wanted to be up near, as near to the front lines as she could get. And can you imagine her and Florence Nightingale under the same roof? They were, <laughs> talk about chalk and cheese. I mean, it would have been impossible. Mary was too much of a loose cannon. And that was why Nightingale always kept, her distance from her. She couldn't control her. She was outside her jurisdiction in Crimea. And Mary was a holistic practitioner and a Caribbean, with from the Caribbean tradition. She did nursing her own way, which was very much hands-on nurse practitioner kind of method. So Mary never ceased to admire Nightingale, but behind the scenes privately, Nightingale was fairly um, ungenerous about Mary. First of all, she thought she was a quack. She said so, but only in private to her sister. The other thing she deeply, deeply disapproved of, and I think it this really was the root of Florence's hostility, was that obviously at her general store and restaurant, she sold alcohol. And for Florence, alcoholism in the British Army was an enormous problem and a very real problem. And she absolutely abhorred anyone flogging alcohol to the troops. But as such, Mary was nothing but respectful and never said a bad word about Florence Nightingale. I want to pivot to how you came across Mary Seacole. Why did you decide to write this book? The first three books I did were for an American reference publisher called ABC Clio. They had an Oxford branch when I was living in Oxford, and I knew the MD there, and he asked me if I would consider putting together an encyclopedia of women social reformers. The thing I I decided from the get-go was I had to actually spread my net very wide to get more interesting women you know, women of colour, women from Africa, from Asia, from India, from the Caribbean, because you know as well as I do, if you just say, oh, give me some women social reformers in the 19th century, they're all white Brits and Americans from fairly comfortable middle-class backgrounds too. I didn't want it to be dominated by those women, though a lot of them, of course, are in there. I wanted to find new women, women who hadn't been written about, women even from South America, from Japan. In the end, I found women from all over the place. I stretched my terms of reference to women who, you know, been involved in healthcare, not not necessarily pioneers or inventors or, you know, set up hospitals like Nightingale. And I came across Mary. And I was absolutely fascinated by her story because I've done a lot of genealogy. I've done all my own family history back to the 1520s. I love coming across people for whom there are gaps and annoying, uh, you know, absences in the record. And I always try and fill them in. So I started searching for Mary and her 
her father and the husband's family and all that. And I got completely sucked into her story. I found her so infuriating because she left so much out of her memoir, which only covers, you know, six years of her life, really. And I thought, well, I'd really love to write this woman's biography, but it seemed like a hopeless case then because of the lack of material. And then someone else rushed out a very slim biography for 2005 Bicentenary. And the agent I was with at the time said, oh, well, forget it. You can't have another rival biography too soon. So I said, well, never mind. I'm going to do this as a hobby. Every so often, whenever I finished a project or when I had a bit of time, I'd do a bit more digging. And so what started as a hobby in 2002, 20 years later, <laughs> finally made it to book length. <laughs> but this shows you how hard it has been to winkle out Mary's story. In this book, there is an image of Mary Seacole. It's an 1869 portrait of Mary that you discovered and is now in the National Portrait Gallery. How did you come across this image? Well, that was the painting that also fired me up to keep searching. Because when I first was asked to write Women's Social Reformers and I got into Mary and I wanted to do her story, one of the first things I did, because I've actually always been passionately interested in the Crimean War since I was a a teenager, I joined the Crimean War Research Society. Because what do you do when you want to find out more about a subject? You look for the experts. You look for the specialists. The the gentlemen of the Crimean War Research Society are in, unbelievably knowledgeable and you can draw on a tremendous range of expertise there. So I joined that and I started talking to them about Mary Seacott and one of the bones of contention within that society and among some male military historians, I have to add, is this issue of Mary's medals and how she got them and were they, did she wear them fraudulently and stuff like It's very complicated and it would take too long to go into, but basically I started trying to research how she got the medals because it had really annoyed me that some of the people in the society just dismissed her as a fraud. And I was talking to someone about, in the Orders and Medals Research Society about the whole issue, And not long afterwards, he contacted me, said, well, you wouldn't believe it. I've just had an email from a friend of a friend who who knows this dealer who's come come across a painting that they think might be Mary. It's of a black woman wearing medals and they need to have it verified and identified. So he said, can I send it you the JPEG? So this guy, Norman, sent me the JPEG. And honestly, there it was. I mean, I knew (laughs) I clicked on the JPEG and saw that and I thought, oh, my God, that's got to be Mary. There is no two ways about it. So there then followed an extremely complicated and tortuous chase to track down the guy who had the painting and beg him to let me buy it before he sent it off to sell it anywhere. And then I had to get the money from, you know, I had to get a bank loan and and it got very hairy, actually. Uh, because I was a single mother at the time. And and although the painting didn't cost much, because it was by a totally unknown artist. Now, this is the thing. If that painting had been by a famous artist, a well-known 19th century artist, I've never got near it. That dealer would have sent it to London to auction and it would have gone somewhere. And I had this terrible, terrible 
excruciating desperation <laughs> to make sure the painting was somewhere where everyone could see it. You know, I'm a feminist and I'm a woman's historian and I wanted to make sure that Mary's portrait was in the National Portrait Gallery, which was where she deserved to be. And she's actually, actually, you know, ended up in the same room as Florence Nightingale's portrait. I was driven to ensure that that painting didn't disappear off somewhere, you know, into a private collection or abroad or goodness. I, I'm not sure that that would have happened at the time. There wasn't sufficient interest in Mary that there is now. But anyway, I managed to get it and I took it to the National Portrait Gallery within two weeks of obtaining it and I left it on loan with them. I then had to try and identify who painted it. On the back of the painting, it said A.C. Challen. Well, I searched every art catalogue. I went to the Heinz Archive at the National Portrait Gallery. I searched high and low. I couldn't find any mention of an artist called A.C. Challen anywhere. It was like he never existed. So again, what did I do? I went the genealogical route. And I thought, a name like A.C. Challen, I might get lucky. So I started at the 1881 census and I found an Albert Charles Challen. And luckily on the census, he described himself as an artist. So I knew I had the right guy. And once I had his name and, you know, I found out where he was born, his family, etc. But what's so sad about Albert Charles Challen is that I've still not found any other paintings by him. And nobody has ever come across him still. And it's probably because he actually died about three months after Mary of TB. So he was only in his early 30s. But I can't believe that there, there isn't another picture by him somewhere hanging on someone's wall. Mary Seacole zigzagged the world. To what extent did you follow her footsteps? I was very fortunate that twice in 2010, and I can't remember the first time, probably about 2007, I was asked to go on a lecture cruise to the Black Sea and talk about various subjects, about the Crimean War, obviously, and the Russians and the Tsars and this, that and the other. And twice I had the great good fortune, because it's a no-go zone now, to go to Crimea. I went to the battlefields. I saw Balaclava. I went to the Sevastopol Panorama Museum. It was wonderful because no one can go there now. It's a war zone. But within England, yes, I know the places Mary operated and went around in London. And she did live in London when she was back in England from her travels. She was always in London, either off the Edgware Road or in Paddington, that area, just on the north side of Oxford Street, really. Well, I'm really excited to have this book on my shelf because it really does feel like a how-to or a reference on how to write a good biography and how to bring the reader along your research process. So thank you very much. You're welcome. That was biographer Helen Rappaport talking with bio member Jenny Skoog about her book In Search of Mary Seacole, The Making of a Black Cultural Icon and Humanitarian. It was published by Pegasus Books in September 2022. This interview was recorded via Zoom on December 13, 2022. To learn more about Bio or to hear other episodes in our podcast series, please visit our website, biographersinternational.org. 
I'm BioMember Jenny Skoog in New York City. Alani Hodge created our theme music, and until next time, thanks so much for listening. 